So many of us know the experience of being really excited for something to happen, but then having to wait for it. And in that period, the wait just seems like forever because the thing we're wanting brings us so much joy or happiness or comfort. You know, maybe it's a friend that you haven't seen in a long time that is visiting you, or maybe it's a, uh, a book that you've been waiting for in a series and you, you just can't wait for it to come out, or maybe it's a, a much-needed vacation for your family, or maybe as a child, it is your parents telling you that next weekend we're going to go to the beach or to the theme park or to the zoo or, or a baseball game, or maybe your birthday is coming up and you just you can't wait for that moment to happen. I think we can all relate to this idea of there being this anticipation that is felt in the interim period of knowing something that's going to happen, but then having to wait to experience it. Well, this morning as we return to the book of Luke, it's with that anticipation, that tension, that we enter back into Luke's story once again. You see, Luke left us on this massive cliffhanger in the story. If you remember, we left off in the story, we were following the births of two children. The first boy was named John, miraculously born to an old priestly couple far past their childbearing age. And then a second child, Jesus, not born to an old couple, but rather born to a virgin girl by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that there's such great anticipation is because when these two boys grow up, we recognize what it is they're going to do. We've been told what it is they're going to do. John is going to grow up and he is going to be a great prophet of the Lord. He is to prepare the way for the Savior to come. And then we have Jesus, the very salvation of God, the very hope of the world, the King in the line of David. And so there is this anticipation that is building as, these, as we wait for these boys to grow up and fulfill their mission. Well, in our story, you know, that day has finally come. The wait is finally over. It's been 30 years, but the greatest story in history is now underway. And it begins on the banks of the River Jordan. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 30, or chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 1 to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachontus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh 
shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to be looking at the message that John the Baptist has come to bring. And we know that John has been chosen for an important task. Thirty years before uh, his, his entrance into ministry, the angel said to his father, even before he was born, that this boy will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so John is to have a vital role in this grand story of redemption. He has the special responsibility of preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. When I worked back in Niagara at a, at a lab, I remember one time we were going to have a special visitor come and tour and visit the lab. It was the premier of Ontario, who at the time I didn't think was very special, but she was going to come and take a tour of our building. And so in the week prior, the premier had sent some representatives to come and tell us, hey, this, this is what the premier is coming to do, and this is what you need to do in order to prepare for her coming. And so we had to Make sure the lab benches were clean. Make sure our lab coats were washed. All the dangerous chemicals needed to be put away. We needed to do all of these things before she came to visit. And this is the role that John has been called to play. 
He is the representative from God who comes before to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. He tells them what it is that must be in place so that the Messiah might be properly received by the people. Now, there's one main thing that John came and called them to do and calls us to do, and that is true repentance before the Lord. And that's what we're going to be spending our time looking at this morning. What is true repentance? Is this, if this is how we prepare for the Messiah to come, what is it that we need to do? And this is an important topic, perhaps one of the most important topics, because it directly pertains to your salvation and my salvation. You see, Jesus, when speaking to a group of people that were listening to him, they were asking him about uh, these people that died. And they said, this must have been the judgment of God upon them. And Jesus responds, saying to them, unless you repent, likewise, you will perish. And so then repentance is is a matter of life and death for us. It's a, it's a matter of whether you will be in the kingdom of God or not. Repentance is not optional. It's not something that, that you can just decide to do or not to do. Repent, or likewise, you will perish. Now imagine you've all heard the word repentance before. We, we, even, we even will say the words often ourselves, but I want to make sure that we truly understand what repentance means. And John is going to tell us, he's going to tell us and he's going to show us what it truly is. And so in verse 1 and 2, we kind of get the introduction to the scene that we have. So you can imagine uh, John here, he's, he's, on the, he, he's been living out in the wilderness, he's been uh, eating locusts and honey, he's kind of like a straggly man with a big beard, a camel's hair tunic, and, uh, and, and Luke is going to introduce us to, to the greater than setting that we have here in our passage. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachontus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so not only in this passage do we see here that Luke clearly has a concern for historical accuracy. He's writing down all the names of, of the governors and the tetrarchs of the region. But more than that, Luke's giving us an idea of the political and religious climate of the time. He's giving us a, an idea of, of of the ministry and the, the area that John is going to be ministering. You know, of, of the political leaders he mentions, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the rest, none of them were particularly friendly, to put it nicely, to the Jews. Tiberius had expelled the Jews from Rome just a few years earlier. Pontius Pilate was, uh, one historian described him this way, as a as a rule that was marked by briberies, insults, outrages, frequent executions without trial, and endless savage ferocity. And we know that Herod's father was no friend to the Jews as well, killing all of the baby boys born in certain regions. And so all of that to say, it definitely wasn't 
comfortable living for the Jews at the time under these, these foreign rulers. And the religious climate was just as barren and corrupt. You'll notice here that Luke mentions two high priests. He says the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now immediately you might be wondering, how does that work? How do you have two high priests? Well, it's because there was the official high priest at the time who was Caiaphas, but then there was the unofficial high priest, Annas, who was still considered by many to be the the real authority of high priesthood. You see, Annas had been the high priest for 10 years, but then he stepped down, and after him, five of his sons were the high priest, and now Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the high priest. And so essentially, Luke is, is telling us here, we have this religious system where this family has complete dynastic control over the most important office in the, in the Jewish faith, the office of high priest. And this has been happening for the past 30 years. And so it's into this, this setting that John is now emerging. And, and notice the contrast here. So you have Caesar in his palace. You have Pilate in his palace. You have Caiaphas and, and Annas in their palaces. But then you have John. And John comes to the Lord. He, he comes and begins his ministry in the wilderness. And as we see much throughout the Gospels, you know, God is already challenging these, these religious elite and institutions of the day. But this was all prophesied beforehand. Verses 4 and 6 talk about that. You know, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then this is interesting. Every valley, every low area shall be filled, and every high area mountain shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. See, John was foretold to be one who would come and bring about really this great leveling within society and within the religious institutions. You know, that the ones who were mighty and high would be brought low, and those who were lowly and humble would be raised up. There would be a, a leveling of the playing field where you're social status, your national heritage, your family and bloodlines, your political power, it's not going to matter. What will matter is whether you are willing to come to the Lord in faith and repentance. That's exactly what we see John preaching in verse 3. Verse 3 says, and he went into all the wilderness, and, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, John's message is pretty clear. Repent. In Matthew's, in Matthew's account of the event in his gospel, he records the exact words that John is saying, and he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does it mean to repent? You know, it's to repent to simply say, oh yeah, I did that wrong, I'm sorry and move on with your life. We're going to get into more detail into what it actually looks like, but the most basic meaning of repentance is the idea of turning away. You know, in the Hebrew, the word repentance is shuv, which means to literally turn. And in the Greek, it means to have a change of mind. It means to have a a change of attitude and thought regarding sin and a turning away from that sin, a a grieving 
over your sin, a confessing of your sin, and then a turning away from it and turning towards God. Emka read for us this morning Psalm 51, that there is a true example of repentance. David is recognizing his sin. You can just feel his grief over his sin. He confesses that to the Lord. He turns away from it, and then he begs God to have mercy upon a sinner like him. That is what repentance is. And the baptism that John is giving them is meant to represent that. It was meant to represent a symbolic washing, a a cleansing, a, a cleaning away of the old patterns of self and sin and a renewed allegiance to serve and follow the Lord. Now, what is interesting is that that Luke says that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so, is Luke teaching here that repentance is necessary for salvation? I mean, what about saved by grace alone through faith alone? Must there be repentance along with my faith if I am to be saved? And I think the answer is exactly that, Dustin. From the Bible, it's it's pretty clear that, yes, there must be repentance. Peter, in the sermon on Pentecost, preaches, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And again later, Peter is recalling to the church the events that had transpired when he brought the gospel to Cornelius. And they're listening to him and they say this, When they heard These things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, if there is no repentance, there is no salvation. Now, it should be clear that no amount of repentance can merit your salvation. Now, I do not earn the favor of God through my repentance. We saw that in the, in the medieval ages where they would uh, harm themselves. They, would, uh, they, they thought that their penitence before the Lord would, would save them. Even Luther thought that for a little while, but he realized there's no way he could do that. You know, he would, he would sin and then he'd have to go right back to the confession booth. He couldn't, he couldn't keep up. He couldn't be a good enough repenter to be saved by God. And so repentance doesn't earn us salvation before God, doesn't wipe away our sins. But the Bible does teach that every saved soul will be a repentant soul. Every saved soul will be a repentant soul. It's the idea that that having spots doesn't make you a Dalmatian, but every Dalmatian has spots. Repentance is a characteristic of everyone who is truly a Christian. And just as in our Christian life, we are called to have continual faith. We are called to to persevere to the end. We're also called to have continual repentance. You know, continual turning away from sin and turning towards God. A continual reforming of your minds and attitudes and thoughts away from what they used to be and now conform to the mind and attitude and thoughts of Christ. No, maybe it was I used used to laugh at crude jokes with my friends, but now the Lord has changed my heart to love what is pure and righteous. And maybe I used to keep and harbor all of my money and my possessions to myself, but the Lord has changed my heart 
to recognize that it's better to give than to receive. Maybe I used to get angry and impatient and easily annoyed, but now the Lord has changed my heart to be slow to anger and patient and understanding. Maybe I struggled with same-sex attraction, but the Lord has slowly changed my, my heart and my mind to be conformed to that of Christ. See, repentance must mark the life of the believer. And so all that to say that, that God hasn't spoken through this prophet. He, God, God hasn't been silent for 500 years and come to this prophet with a, a message that is unimportant. What he says is of extreme importance, a matter of salvation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now for the remainder of our time, we're going to be looking at what true repentance is to look like in our lives. And there are three things that we see. First, true repentance brings visible change. True repentance comes with a greater baptism. And lastly, true repentance arouses fierce opposition. And so first, true repentance brings visible change. Look at verses 7 to 9. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John here, he's, he's painting for us a, a picture. It's a picture of this group of snakes that are fleeing from this brush fire. See, when there is a, a fire or a threat of fire, snakes will, will come slithering out of their holes and, and slither away from the fire so that they can be safe. And John is relating this behavior to some of the people that are coming out to, to him to be baptized. Now, why is he saying this? I mean, if, if someone were to come to me and is like, hey, I want to be bath, baptized, my first response isn't usually, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, John is, John is saying this because uh, it, at this time, there is, there is this desire on the part of those to perform the religious act of baptism so that they'll be saved from the wrath to come, but there is no intention of following through with a changed life. You know, they want external obedience. They want to say, what can I sign off on? What can I check off on? But they don't actually want their hearts to be changed. And so it's like snakes that are fleeing from a fire. These people are simply here to be safe and flee from the wrath of God. But John says, I'm sorry. That's not how it works. You must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not a, a verbal thing. You don't just say, yeah, I repent, and then go on living the same way. True repentance results in visible change. And we also see that you can't just rely upon your heritage either. John says, and do not even begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You know, some of the Jews wanted to say, well, of course God will grant us salvation. We are the children of Abraham. We are the, the children of promise, the chosen people of God. But again, John says, not so fast. 
God can make children of Abraham out of these stones. In other words, your heritage is not going to save you. Connection with the the right people isn't going to save you. Surrounding yourself with Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Children, just because your parents are Christian, just because your parents bring you to church, doesn't make you a Christian. There's no way around what is required of you. True and genuine repentance before the Lord. You see, the axe is already being laid to the tree. There is already a separating of those who are, t- who are willing to live for Christ as Lord and those who are simply here just to get their get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, this is a, a stern warning to those who, who think that they are in, who think that they are part of the people of God, but really aren't. And it's a warning that we all must heed. You might, you might be able to fool others around you by your religious behavior. You might be able to fool your, your friends or your family or your parents or even your, your church into thinking that you are in the kingdom of heaven. You might have even fooled yourself into thinking that if you were raised in a Christian family, if you, if you attended church weekly, if you were baptized, that you've, you've checked off the Christian to-do list and now you've got your one-way ticket to paradise. Well, that is not how it works. Now, you might be able to fool others with your religious activity, but you can't fool God. Every tree that does not bear the fruit of repentance is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, fortunately, the crowds, they begin to recognize that they have, they have misunderstood what repentance truly was. And so they ask him, they say, in light of the, the judgment that he's just warned them about, they ask him, then what shall we do? Now, we, we want to be saved from the wrath to come. We want to, we want to, to show true repentance and, and actually have true repentance. So what then shall we do? And John replies in verses 10, or verses 11 to 14. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And the tax collectors, he says to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldiers, he says, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And so essentially here, John is is giving them examples of fruit keeping with repentance. Examples of this real visible change that follows from a truly repentant heart. And now what I found interesting as I was reading through this is that all of his examples have to do with, with money or material possessions. And I think the reason is because money and materialism is often, especially in our day, the chief idol that fights for the throne of our hearts. You know, we often turn to money to find security and comfort rather than finding that in the Lord. We often rely upon a, a full bank account and a steady income in order to be comfortable and to be happy and to be glad. But it says here that a, a truly repentant person is willing to part with their money. They have, a, they have a loose grip on the money and possessions that they have been given and will be generous with using them 
to serve others. You know, a sign of, of repentance is to say, there is no more Lord of money and materialism on my heart. Jesus alone is Lord. I trust Him with my money. I trust Him with my possessions. And I will give where giving is needed. And so that's the first point. True repentance comes with visible change. Whatever area of sin that you are struggling with, whatever area where there's, there's a battle that's ongoing, true repentance, though not always, is going to result in victory. What you should look for is a, is a pattern of victory, a, a growth in overcoming that sin, a continual repentance so that your life reflects the repentance that you've sought after. Now, second... True repentance comes with a greater baptism. Look at verses 15 to 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so people now are discussing amongst themselves whether John is the Christ. I mean, John is, is preaching with power. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. People are coming in droves to be baptized to him. So it's not a surprise uh, that people are thinking, maybe this guy is the Christ who is to come. But John clears things up. He makes, it, he makes it clear that he is but a forerunner of the Christ to come. He says he is not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. Now, in that time, uh, there was a rabbinic teaching that was going around uh, that most people followed. And it was that if you were to be taught by someone, if they were to be your, your teacher and your master, you would, you would follow them around and you would essentially act as a slave for your master. But you should never stoop as low as untying your teacher's sandals. Well, John here says that, that Christ is so great. And in comparison to Christ, John is not even worthy to do this task that is below that of a slave. We were talking in our elder study on Monday about the balance between humility and not being a weak man. And I think here we see that example in John. John is a humble man before the Lord. He says he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of Christ. And yet he is a man of authority who preaches the gospel, preaches it to the point uh, that he will go to prison and die for it. And now one of the reasons that John says Jesus is greater is because Jesus' baptism is greater. See, John is baptizing with water. He's, he's giving the, the, the people a symbol, but going down into the water and coming up out of the water doesn't, doesn't do some sort of change of your heart. doesn't impart anything to you. But Jesus' baptism does, and that's what makes Jesus' baptism greater. It, it brings about the baptism of the Spirit. Now, baptism with the Spirit is the act of God coming and regenerating our hearts. It's the initial event when the Spirit enters in and removes our hearts of stone and He imparts to us a new heart, the promise of the new covenant, a new heart that is able to believe and love and serve God. It's, it's being born again 
as a Christian, made a new creation, brought from death to life through the regenerating work of the Spirit. And this this baptism of the Spirit is really what sets us on the path of following the Lord in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us, but then He stays within us. He dwells with us. He's our, our seal of salvation. He's the testimony that we are the children of God. He's the, he's the down payment and deposit for our final salvation that is to come. And He empowers us not only to do the works of ministry, but to do the very thing that we're talking about here, which is repentance. You see, what I, what I don't want you to do is walk away from this message and think that, that okay, he's saying the solution to all this is that I need to try harder at being a Christian. You know, you need to do a, a better job at earning the favor of God through repentance. You need to give away all your money and possessions and then God will love you. That is not what I'm teaching at all. What I want you to see is that repentance involves a changing of your very heart and your desires, not just your behaviors. And guess what? You cannot do that. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard, his spots, Jeremiah says? Can one who is evil change his ways? No. But the Spirit can do that. And your job is to cry out as David cries out, Lord, I have sinned. Have mercy on me and create in me a clean heart. And that is what the Spirit will do. He will, he will lead you on the path of repentance. You know, the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus brings is what truly changes you into a repentant person. But we see here, that's not the only baptism that Jesus is going to bring. It also says that He will bring a baptism of fire. Now, many Christians see the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire as the same thing. You know, all who are baptized in, are in spirit are baptized in fire. But I'm not sure that's what's being taught here in the text. I think John is saying that you will either be baptized in spirit or be baptized in fire. And let me explain. See, look how fire is being used all throughout this, the context of this passage. Verse 9 says, Trees not bearing good fruit are thrown into the fire. In verse 17, a judgment and separation is occurring where you're going to have the wheat that is gathered into the barn for eternal life, but then you're going to have the chaff that's going to be taken and burned with unquenchable fire. And you see, fire, really how it's used all throughout the, the New Testament and especially in this passage, it's not a good thing. And I think that the point that John is making is that Jesus is coming to baptize with the Spirit those who are truly repentant, the wheat who are gathered into the barn, but there will be a baptism of fire for the unrepentant, and they will be thrown forever into the unquenchable fire. That's why he gives the analogy right after in verse 17. You know, the wheat taken to the barn, the chaff taken to the fire, the baptism of the Spirit for the repentant, the baptism of fire, which is essentially the judgment of God, on those who are unrepentant. And the reality is, it's either one or the other. See, there's no, there's no third option that you get to vote for. You either say, yes, I repent, Jesus is Lord, 
and you are baptized with the Spirit, or you refuse, and you say, I am Lord, and you're baptized with fire for all eternity. And so you need to choose today whom it is you will serve, Jesus Christ as Lord or yourself as Lord. And then finally, the last aspect of true repentance is that true repentance arouses fierce opposition. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now first notice how the message of what John is preaching is called good news. Now I know repentance is is hard news, but it's also good news. You know, it's good news because God is a God of mercy toward the repentant. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to fulfill every righteous demand of the law. Jesus did that, and He purchased for you a salvation. And now what God asks of you is simply this. Acknowledge your sinful ways. Acknowledge your hopelessness apart from God. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that salvation is through Him and Him alone, and you will be saved. And that is is good news. Every other religion teaches you must do to be saved. But the gospel teaches that Christ has already done. And so now we turn to Him and believe to be saved. And so that means when, when we tell someone to turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus, what we're telling them is the good news. I had a conversation with someone the other day, and they said that to call someone to repentance is not loving them. Loving them is accepting them as they are and the way that God has made them. But that is not loving at all. That just leads them straight to the baptism of fire. It is loving to tell them the good news to tell them the good news of repentance, to say that this is sin and that you need to turn from it. It's, it's to lovingly and kindly say to someone who, who claims to be a Christian but's living in unrepentant sin, this is not the way of the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. But unfortunately, no matter how loving and wonderful the message of the gospel is that we bring, we see that there will be opposition. You know, Herod doesn't like that John is calling out for his sin. Herod doesn't like that. He, he thinks that he's one of the mountains that can't be touched by the valleys. But John is bringing a leveling. No one, no one is free from the call to repentance. And so Herod, he doesn't like this. And he locks John up in prison. You see, the message of the gospel, though, good news, it's offensive. It's offensive because it calls out sin, and it calls sin for what it is, something deserving the wrath of God. And it says that you can't just do and live however you want. There is a standard that the Lord has put in place that you must submit to and follow. There is an authority that is greater than yourself that you must bow to. Now, but even though we face opposition... I want to encourage you, that doesn't mean that we should ever shy away from the message or change the message of Jesus Christ. Never 
compromise on the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though it isn't popular, even though it is going to involve personal risk to you and to your family, never, never stop preaching a gospel of repentance and faith. You know, times seem to only be getting harder for the Christian, but don't let that sway you. Keep preaching the whole gospel of Christ. The bad news that we are sinners deserving the wrath of God and there's no way to save ourselves, but also the good news that salvation is offered through the blood of Christ. As Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation. We change the gospel, we lose the gospel, we lose the power of God. Now to finish up, if I've lost you and you haven't been paying attention, I want you to focus your attention back now. See, the message that John is preaching is important. Because I think we all need to ask ourselves this question. Are you truly repentant? Do you you think that you are saved, just like these people thought they were saved, but your life shows zero evidence of repentance? Are you simply fleeing from the wrath to come because you don't want to go to hell, but you have no desire to submit to Christ in all areas of your life? Are there sins in your life, are there activities in your life that you are unwilling to set aside in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there any area of your life where you say, no, this is my, this is my, uh, this is where I find my joy and my comfort, or this is, this is innate to who I am as a person. I'm not setting that aside. Is there some area where you've given Jesus no jurisdiction? You can touch other areas, but you can't touch this in my life. Is Jesus truly the Lord of your life, who in all areas you say to him, not my will, but your will be done. John is, John is speaking to people who thought that their whole lives, that they were saved. And Jesus, when he comes, he, he warns against people who proclaim to be his followers, but really have no share in the kingdom of God. And what I don't want is for that to be any of you. I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that if you pray to prayer, if you, if you came up to the altar during the altar call, that all of a sudden you are, you are checked into the, the kingdom of God. Are you truly repentant? Are you walking in repentance? Jesus says that many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people proclaimed the Lord Jesus with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Is that you? Jesus says anyone who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. See, if there is anyone or anything else that you want to keep on the throne of your heart, you cannot be Jesus' disciple. That's what he says. There is but one Lord, and Jesus doesn't share his lordship with anyone or anything. And so I'm calling you to examine your life. Have you truly repented? If not, you need to ask yourself if you've ever truly trusted in Jesus 
as your Lord and Savior. But the good news of the gospel is that there is still hope. For the gift of salvation is freely offered to you. But you need to know that if you come to Him, you don't come to Him on your own terms. You don't come to Him and and still hold on to that sin that you love so much. You come to Him with full submission to His will and His ways and His purposes for your life. Matthew 16, verse 24 to 26. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Let's pray.